Hello, I'm Helen McDonald, clinical editor and regular podcaster for the BMJ. And I talk to many fascinating people who are trying to understand or change health and healthcare for the better, all in the hope of making a better and healthier world. And today I have a very special guest. In fact, I think she wrote the part about the healthier world into the ethos of the BMJ's mission, or at least I think you did. Um, She is, in fact, our boss. I'm here with Fiona Godley, the first female editor-in-chief of the BMJ, who's leaving us after 16 years. You kindly emailed me your CV. Thank you for that. I'm sorry about that. You did ask. I did ask, uh, so I could prepare thoroughly for this interview, but I basically ignored most of it. And um, I'm sure we'll hear about some of the wonderful things that you did that you wrote about on your CV, but I'm mostly going to leave that to the history books, because most of all, I want to offer listeners and readers some rare insights into the lady behind Editor's Choice, um, and to find out what's kept you going, what's kept you up at night, what's kept you with us for so long um, over the last 16 years. So. I hope that you're sitting comfortably. I am. And people are at home or in their cars on their way to work or wherever they may be are sitting comfortably. Um, outside, there's the big hustle and bustle of central London. We're actually in BMA House. We are. Face-to-face. We're not on Zoom. For the first time in months. Good meetings, I think, start with introductions. So I feel like that's kind of where we should start. And we know, Fee, some uh, facts I gleaned from your CV. I'm sorry about the CV. I feel I should apologise again. I haven't had a CV for years. And then someone asked for one. So I produced that thing. And it was... Anyway, there well, we go. This is what I, I wrote did... down. Woman, trained and worked as doctor, editor, <laughs> very passionate about the NHS, quite tenacious, brave can summarise that you like doing new things and experimenting with publishing, but tell us in your own words a little bit more about the kind of person who you really are. Goodness, woman is interesting, starting with that. I think that probably is right. Um, I always used to say doctor first thing if people ask me, what do you do? I'm a doctor. And and I chose that path very early on when I was about seven. Um, but I think I I do now always say I'm an editor, and I I hold that with enormous pride. I think it's a it is a real thing, and I I I've loved doing it, and I I think it's about kind of gathering gathering and creating an environment where thoughts and ideas and controversies and and information is exchanged. And so I, anyway, I, that's what I think of myself as. Um, but I am a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I have. Um, I, f- I think I still have friends. Um, I I love my colleagues. I love the work. Um, why am I leaving? We'll get onto that. So that's a lot of roles. But underneath all those roles, what kind of a person are you at your core? Okay, well, I, I I do feel I have a sense of mission. I I've, I sort of like the idea of, of doing things that are going to make the world a better place. I don't know where that comes from, uh, my family and my education, I guess. Um, I, I'm quite driven by um, wanting to seek the truth in a way about things, wanting to get to the bottom of things, um, wanting to get the best out of people around me. Um, I love bringing people together. I'm, I'm part of a, a biggish family where all my, my three siblings and I are all doctors. My father was a doctor. We, we, we have a very close extended family, if that makes sense as well, of, of their spouses, their children, cousins. Um, so I, I, I love the warmth of that kind of family feeling. And, um, 
I love, I, I, I think one of the great things about medicine, one of the great things about editing is, is, the, is the people um, and many different types of people, um, but all somehow engaged in the same enterprise. Um, so although there's conflict and although there's um, challenge and variety, there is still this sense of common purpose, which I, mm. I feel very committed to. And you thought of being a doctor age seven. I'm surprised you came to it so late. <laughs> when when did you decide? <laughs> I think probably, probably about five be- seconds before I went to medical school. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I was an early, early adopter. Um, and uh, my father, I was the youngest of four, and I like to say that I was the first to decide. But anyway, that may be, may be fictitious. My father, right up to when I went to medical school, was saying I didn't need to do it, and maybe there was some other route I could take. You know, oh. I could be a dentist, he said. I a remember dentist. him. <laughs> <laughs> um, which didn't appeal. But um, no, no, I, 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 I've always felt that, and I've always felt that coming into the BMJ didn't mean leaving medicine. I think that was a very, mm. very crucial thing for me. I don't it's know if hard. you feel the it's same. It's a doctor thing, isn't it? Once you're trained as a doctor and you belong to this little doctor club, there does seem to be a stigma to leaving it, but then also great excitement about the possibility that you might leave. People are always very intrigued. Oh, I see. I left. didn't... Yes, I didn't feel... I, I spent a lot of my time saying that I hadn't really left, although my mother was very distressed, said, what a waste of a medical... I mean, until she understood a bit more about the BMJ. Um, what a waste of medical, you know, training... But um, but I I have always felt that 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 coming to the BMJ you know we ha- you had to be doctor to do the role, and one in surrounded by medicine mm. the thinking and the academic and the practical the so clinical. So did you first see a BMJ? Presumably quite early on. Well, no, I don't remember them at home at all. I, I have no memory of them at home. I don't know if my father got them. I presume he did. But um, I I did get them when I was a junior doctor, but only to look at the job section. I'm afraid to say I didn't ever. I don't think open the BMJ itself because it was two separate things. So I used did, to dive upon the job section. Something that was on the page that was not <laughs> in the advert section. I think probably when I first started here as a as a, as a junior editor. <laughs> I think. So, what do you remember about your first day at BMJ? What was it like? Well, uh, Stephen Locke was the editor. Um, he was just coming to the end of his term. Richard Smith was away, who, who did take over from him, was away in America for some of that first time. He'd, he'd gone away to do an MBA. Um, it was very quite old school. Um, Stephen had a big sofa, served tea. People left at five o'clock. Um, you got rid of these, the big sofa. And the well, I mean, I didn't ever inherit <laughs> Stephen's office, sadly. Um, I said it was long gone by the time I became editor. I don't think I had a... No, I did have a little office at one point. We had individual offices with red lights over the door. So if you wanted to be quiet, you could turn your light on and nobody would come in and disturb you, which was marvellous. And um, we were given piles of manuscripts, which were like patients' notes, some of them terribly thick and some of them just a couple of pages thick. And we would go and get peer reviews on this, what was considered a terrifically whizzy system, which was a computer in a room where you sat down and pumped in the topic and tried to find peer reviews, um, which well, you then... Did you post it to them? How, how I think to- one did post it, yep. There was no email. Well, we must have posted the manuscripts out. There was a special pigeonhole for manuscripts we were rejecting immediately, which were allowed to sit there for two weeks because it was thought to be rude to send them a definite, immediate no. The two weeks sort of just, just festering... And then, and then the letter would go out. So fast forward some years after that, and you 
presumably were reading the BMJ at this time when you saw the editor-in-chief's job advertised. What made you apply? Because women sort of classically undersell themselves into major roles and you, I mean, you're not that old now, so you weren't, definitely weren't that old. Oh, you're too kind, darling. <laughs> um, I'll just tell everyone I'm 60. And uh, at the time of their, uh, this happening, I was in my early 40s. Um, so um, I think I have, do you know, I have never felt that I couldn't do something because I was a woman. Um, I mean, apart from lifting very, <laughs> very heavy weights. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Or, you know, I mean, physical tasks, although I'm quite strong. But anyway, I've never felt that I couldn't do something professional because I was a woman. Um, and, you know, why that is, I don't know whether others, whether, you know, I mean, have you been felt constrained by your, sorry to ask you this, Helen, and I know this is an interview with me. <laughs> but I, but you just like to turn I like it around. I do like hearing from other people <laughs> rather than from me. Anyway, you're not going to answer. Um no, I've never felt that, that um, being a woman should, should stop me in any way professionally. And so that wasn't really the issue. In fact, when I got the job, the big surprise to me was that there was this big sense of excitement or, or interest that I was the first female editor. I genuinely, it hadn't occurred to me as an issue. Um, and then to some extent, I felt a little bit of, I wouldn't say resentment, but a sort of reluctance to, to, to make something of that. Because I felt, well, look, you know, I've... I've done the job. I've been, in the, you know, I, I know how to do it. I'm a doctor. All the things that had gone into making me feel that I could do it, you know. Um, so, um, but on the, then just to follow up that strain of thought, I, I also recognise that one has to celebrate the fact that 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 I that female advancement and feminism had reached the stage to the extent that I I could go for it and not question my going for it and that, that relies on a vast amount of work and suffering and 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 um effort that people have put in over the years men and women to to, to allow that that sense of freedom to to go for things do you think there's also a difference between the person that comes first in a way that you you have to you need someone that doesn't have that fear that isn't going to stop and question that's going to sort of punch their way through the ceiling and be that role model to maybe help another tier of person that might have more self-doubt to, to I, I think I think I think that may be true and and to give credit to to Richard Smith my predecessor and to the, the team in which I grew up as an editor um the, the the final shortlist was three women so there were there were good women editors who you know I wasn't one woman amongst I mean there had been men in the, in the longer list but that that's that was a it, it, it was a, it, there's a lot there were a lot of there are a lot of extremely good female doctor editors and um you know i'm really pleased to be one of them mm. so before we leave feminism there's two two other questions do you think being a woman has altered the path of the journal or its team in any way gosh i had never thought of it um and maybe others will historians will have to have to give a view on that um I think I think there is supposed to be, and and you may be better placed than me to say this, a, a, a style of leadership that women are, are more likely to adopt, uh, which is more facilitative and um, um, sort of um, bringing people in rather than sort of command and control. Uh, so I think that probably is the case in terms of how the team has been led. Um, I have been told. Although I don't, I think of myself as constantly interrupting the people I'm talking to. But I have been told that I listen, and I've also been told that I, 
I, I take on the opinion of the person I've last spoke to, which is a slightly dangerous thing. But what it does mean <laughs> is that I speak to a lot of people and try and feed. My, my feeling about the journal is that it needs to be a forum and, and a platform for many voices uh, rather than one voice. And And I do think whether that's just how I feel most comfortable or whether that's a, a function of being a woman, I don't know. But um, that has certainly been my aim throughout this, that there would be lots of strong, interesting voices. And I, I slightly get tired of the sound of my own voice and writing editor's choice each week. I sort of think, oh, goodness me, have I still got anything worth saying here? Mm. Luckily, it's about the content of the journal. So there is always something new to say. Um, but I, I, I'm much less comfortable thinking this is about me. I, I don't mean to sound too... St- my, Zach, my husband, gets very cross with me about this sort of what appears to be self-deprecation, but it is a genuine feeling. It's not something I put on, that I'm much more comfortable with others in the spotlight than me. Although, having said that, I'm very happy to be up on the stage and, and fronting things because that's in its own way a form of performance and sort of promoting the journal. Um, so I, I, is it, whether that's about being a woman or whether that's just my personality, I don't know. Does it make you more receptive to diversity in other ways? Because I suppose, you know, particularly over the last couple of years, there has been a huge um, movement towards greater recognition of inequality, greater striving towards diversity, not just of gender, but of ethnic diversity, of gender diversity, and whether there there is something about having been in a, I suppose, in a minority group of female leaders, whether that, that allows you greater empathy for people in a position of being in a minority or experience of, of trying to make headway. Well, I'd like to think that. I, I don't know that I can claim that. I, I, I come from a position of enormous privilege. I, I recognise that. And, um, you know, we talk about white privilege, um, but also I come from a sort of comfortable middle class professional background, um, privately educated, all of those things. Um, but I do I do have a sense, uh, and, you know, whether I've always had or as one reads more about it, of, of the enormous inequities in, in our society, we're not a very ethnically diverse clinical um, editorial team at the BMJ. I, I'd like to see that see that improve. It, it it is improving, but perhaps not as fast as it, it should. Um, we're quite a gender diverse and also a sexuality diverse editorial group, which is great. Um, but I, you know, I I have to recognise my own privilege, and I, and I would like to feel that that. Um, well, that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm open to that, and that, that we recognise that's something that healthcare absolutely has to address, because otherwise we are, you know, we're not doing the job we we should be doing. I'm reading your CV. I thought maybe we should interview you, you know, because there's this whole middle section of uh, of what you actually did when you were here, when you were in charge, there were things that obviously went well. There were probably times where things could have gone better or differently. Undoubtedly. Optimistic way of saying things. So if we begin first with with things that went well, I mean, what would be your highlights, things that you've loved, content that you've loved or initiatives that you've loved that where you've just thought, this is just a joy. This is why I do this job. Gosh, well, um, you know, working with a great team, I've said that already, it's absolutely the core. Uh, and when we were under 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 pressure, the, the team at its best. Um, I've loved developing the 
academic side of the journal because we knew we had to do that if we were going to also develop the journalism. I've loved working with really great um, advisors, watching the uh, strategy around what type of research we would publish, how we would publish it, how we would use our policies to to push the envelope on things like transparency and data access and um, conflicts of interest. Those sort of using the journal as a, as, a, as a lever for cultural change in medicine and in research has been just a, an enormous pleasure and, and very, very exciting. Um, and one of those other things we've wanted to change, patient partnership, Tessa Richards coming forward with, with her very passionate sense that the journal had to, had to do this, had to shift medicine um, so that doctors could take on this role of being the mm. patient's ally rather than the person driving the decisions. And we've taken a lot of steps in that direction with Tessa and with others uh, along the way. And there's there's a real sense of just allowing that um, to happen. You know, the yeah. drivers are not necessarily me, um, but I can, in my role as editor-in-chief, say, yes, 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 we're going to do this and, and give people... a you know, the, easing the path so that these wonderful ideas can come through. As you, as you say, you're a, someone that's interested in people and convening those people either with you to make change or allowing them to make changes themselves. Is that kind of your MO of making change happen? Just get a load of people together? Slightly. I mean, just to say, I, d- I couldn't claim the open access. That was, that was you know, I mean, R- Richard Smith et al., um, dr- drove that initially, and, and we just protected it and kept it. Kept it, you know. I, d- I just was a great champion of it, but I didn't start it. But to answer your question, so is that my mo? I think it is. I think I, I, I find, um, you know, how do you how do you know which people to f- to to follow as a leader? You know, which people to allow to take on? You know, which people to encourage with their initiatives? And I, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer to that. Um, but there's something about. Um, spotting people who really know what they're talking about, trusting them, and just feeling that what they're saying is is the right way of going. I mean, it would be hard confronted with, you know, Tessa on patient, Tessa Richards on patient partnership, not to immediately say, yes, we've, we've got to do that. I mean, it's quite obvious. Or And of course, Victor Montori was, was the editorial board member who was behind that as well. And, you know, you only have to hear Victor speak to think that's so obviously the way to go. Duncan, my voice suddenly sounds very different. Have you been um, drinking too much Prosecco up there? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> yeah, I'm some, slightly unaware of how everything works in BMA House. I haven't been out of here for about two years. So. Well, we've had your highlights, Fee. What about the lowlights? Well, anyone who's been an editor uh, will know, you know, you, you're under attack pretty constantly either by people who are upset cross because you've published something Mm -hmm. people who are upset cross because you haven't published something Mm -hmm. um and then you know just the usual pressures of any job um there have been some sort of and it's uh, the the ones that a lot of them become very are very public because you know if it's something you've published then that that then that's a you know you've got to stand by it or decide to correct it or retract it or whatever um and so there have been um and, and then, and then, standing by the story, if you think you should, standing by a, a piece of campaigning or a piece of investigation, um, under attack uh, from you know quite heavy guns at times. Um, so, I mean, the, the one that perhaps is most public is uh, the Statin saga, where we published an article, and and Helen, you are familiar with this, of course, because I edited um, it. Lucky me. <laughs> well, I edited one of them. <laughs> 
because you edited the the, the John Abramson article, which um, you know I think was a very good article, and uh, it, it came under attack. Uh, it, it, for those who don't know, it was an article about um, trying to reanalyze the data on the use of um, statins in people at low risk of heart disease uh, because the Cochrane Review and subsequent NICE guidance had come to the view that people over the age of 50, pretty much anyone at really quite low risk, should be um, taking a statin. And I, at the time, had no view on this, um, really. Uh, but I am interested, and, and this was a charge levelled against me by those who attacked this article, I am interested in um, too much medicine, in, in you know, medicalising uh, people who don't need to be medicalised, and, and the idea of of, med- of 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 um giving pharmaceutical intervention to a broad sway of of the healthy population seemed to me to be at least something worth scrutinising. Um, and this is what that article tried to do, and uh, I think it did so in a very good way. Uh, it, it referenced something which suggested that the adverse effects of statins were at a certain level, and it was that that the um people in Oxford and notably Rory Collins felt was unacceptable. Um, But the process by which he went about, I'm going to say he because it was largely Rory Collins, went about um, trying trying to get us to to, you know, remove the article and possibly remove me, um, were, I thought, rather bullying. And um, did I didn't enjoy the idea that it would be done behind closed doors. Mm. Uh, so having looked at it as best I could um, and corrected the article to the extent that I think it needed it at correcting, I, under pressure to retract the article, I, I decided that the best thing to do was to pass this to someone else or a group of other people on the basis that as editor you've already decided you know that you published the article in the first place you've then stood by it you've corrected it to the extent you feel I didn't think it needed retracting but I didn't think it was I was the right person to make that decision at that point so what what began as a kind of too much medicine story became um, about transparency and openness of critique and then subsequently because in the process we discovered that the which I hadn't known um, I didn't know much about statins at all at the beginning of this saga, um, became one about openness of data. It became apparent that the data behind the decisions by Cochrane, by NICE, were not available for scrutiny, and in particular the data on adverse events. So although that the the Oxford group had pulled together the um, data on the benefits of statins as they saw them in people at low risk, they hadn't done the same for the harms. Um, now, I'm still not really taking a very strong view on on whether statins should be given to people at low risk. But what I will take a strong view on on any topic is that the data behind those um, decisions should be available. They should certainly be available to people like NICE who don't see the full data. They should certainly be available to independent uh, academics so they can scrutinise them. Whether they should be the anonymised data available to the public more generally is is obviously a more difficult decision. But we still don't have the data um, available on the uh, the risks of the, the the adverse effects of statins in people at low risk. So that that was a dis- that was a, a a conflict, if you like, and a very public one because it went you know through the BBC and the Guardian and uh, terrific, mainly in the UK. I don't think it ever really reached uh, beyond the UK. Um, but my approach to that was eventually to pass it to a group which was chaired by our, the, the former chair of our ethics committee, Iona Heath, a wonderful group of experts, completely independent. We, we, I mean, they're independent. We were, we were told they weren't sufficiently independent because Iona had been the chair of our ethics committee. But we 
independent in the sense we passed them everything. We gave them all the documentation. We had no com contact. Iona and her committee, which included Stephen Evans, a great statistician, Cindy Mulrow, an editor in, in the USA, Paul Wicks, who's a patient um, person, uh, um, a really, really great group of people. Um, and they came to the view that the correction we had published was adequate, that we should not retract the article, and that I'm afraid to say that Rory Collins and his colleagues had behaved badly in the process of um, the way they had tried to deal with this and, and refusing to, to, to write something in public about what they wanted wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. So in the end, it was, it was a huge, hugely difficult situation. I felt extremely under pressure. But I said to Iona, over to you. And um, and I, I genuinely said, we will do whatever you say. And and I feel immensely grateful to, not not for their decision, because I would have retracted the paper if, if, if that's what their decision had been. I feel immensely grateful for the process they went through, the transparency of it, the expertise they brought to it. And, and the, the feeling it gave, I think, that the BMJ was open to critique, um, but we wanted it to be done in an open and transparent fashion. And so that dealt with the matter professionally, but I wonder when... Statins is a good example of a, a sort of extreme example of very hard times at the journal and very hard times for you personally um, at work where you have turned to for your inner strength to to keep going and to believe in yourself and not to be especially as a people person ground down by what what can be interpreted as quite personal attacks on your integrity on your judgment H how have you managed to get through those times I have a fantastic support system at home. Um, Zach, my husband, um, my children, uh, not always <laughs> when they were younger, but nowadays very much so. I have a wonderfully close uh, siblingship, all of whom are doctors who, who kind of get some of the, some of the um, pressures I might be under. Um, I think, I think I've, I've always had a, a sense that it's easiest any of these things are easiest if you decide you'll do the right thing, whatever that is. I know that sounds a bit corny, but if it, at your heart you think, I, what, 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 you know, if we made a mistake, we'll correct it. If, if, um, if I've offended someone, I'll apologise. If um, someone has been hurt by something we've published, I will try and make make good. And and um, it doesn't it doesn't always work out. And I'm sure there are people out there, perhaps listening to this, who who don't feel that they've been well dealt with by the journal. But but in terms of guiding me, um, and I'm sure the rest of the team, the feeling is that our aim is to do the right thing. We're not there to to protect ourselves. We're not there really to protect the journal, except that by doing the right thing, we do protect the journal. So I think I think that made life very simple in mm. a way, although not saying easy, but it it made some of the decisions easier. Um, and I inherited this wonderful system of rapid responses from Richard Smith and his era, which meant that if people were critical of what we did, we could just say to them, look, write about it. And if what they write is legally acceptable and, you know, in terms of taste is acceptable, we'll publish their critique. And that, that again, made life very simple. It didn't mean we had to decide whether we agreed with one side or the other. We just said, Let, let's put that out there mm. and then see where that takes us. I'm calling this little section uh, whose side are you on because the role of being a journal editor is a little bit odd isn't it because at its core you wonder sort of what you're doing 
and who you're serving. Are you serving science? Are you serving your doctor readers and wanting to provide them with content that they go, yeah, here, here, we we understand that, we believe in that. Are you serving the public? Are you reflecting what's out there? Or are you, as as the editor, trying to influence things in one direction yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's taken me a little while to to come to an understanding of this, but I feel very comfortable now saying that the BMJ, as I envision it, as I see it functioning at its best, is that it's in the public interest that we we serve the public interest, uh, and and therefore we serve patients, um, and we serve doctors to the extent that we're trying to make them the best doctors they can be, making the best decisions they can make with the best information, and we serve academics by. Uh, encouraging them to be the best that they can be in terms of being, you know, rigorous, reliable, um, uh, transparent, um, independent—all of those things we'd like, like from the best science. So, but but the ultimate thing is is a healthier world. The ultimate thing is is the public interest. And I don't think I understood that at the start. I think you know, uh, I I I'm not sure what I thought at the start, except except that. Um, if you're if you're looking to dig to dig into what is true, not that we can ever get to what is true because there's no absolute truth, I don't think. But then 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 the only route is to see that as in the public interest. The other the other thing I feel I and the team serve is the journal, and I think it's important to say that I don't think anything has the right to exist. The journal has no right to exist unless it serves a function, serves serves its its purpose. But given that the journal has a purpose, which I think is a noble purpose. Then my job as editor in chief, and I think the team for the journal is is to protect the journal, to 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 ensure that it is able to do the work that it must do. And so that's where the reputation of the journal does matter. And we have to be careful which can which 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 um things we take on. Mm. Um, we can't. There, there are many 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 things that come to us and say, you know, here's a problem, here's a challenge, here's a wrongdoing, and we have to choose between those. Which ones we take on as journalism, which ones we take on as commentary. I'm not saying we've always got those decisions right, um, but but it, it's always seemed to me that 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 we we have to try to not damage the reputation of the journal because then it becomes a useless thing and it can't do the important work that I think it has the ability to do. What about politics? Because there's a there's a chunk of rapid responders out there that would say that either the BMJ is too political um, or they, they agree that the BMJ has sort of got it right um, and they sort of believe in, in, in the BMJ's politics. How, how do you separate out, I suppose, the, the evidence and the discussion of the remaining uncertainties or controversies with the politics or are they so inseparable that you can't do that well i think one can't pretend for a moment that health and healthcare aren't political they, they clearly are political i mean there's a quote from verka which i can never remember but you know medicine is politics or vice versa um and and i think that's absolutely right and public health in particular is is deeply political um, because it's about intervening with the public um, and and doing so either with their consent or imposing you know regulation and 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 requirements on them, and the pandemic has shown that above all, um, and and even you know the provisions for the NHS and the way in which the NHS is structured is a deeply political thing, and then you've got international and global health which is geopolitical. Um, I think the important thing is that the BMJ isn't party political, although. 
I think you couldn't read the BMJ and think we were anything other than than than, than liberal and, and and tending towards left wing, and that may be a problem. I recognise that. Uh, we do uh, make efforts to 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 be uh, at the centre of the political spectrum in the UK and and internationally, and I don't think we do too bad a job. But I'm sure people who are more of a conservative bent in the UK would would say that we we fail on on a number of counts. I I think that. Um, the important thing is to be be on top, be be provide a critique, um, and I think it's hard not to be very critical at the moment of the way in which our country is being governed. You know, the main, mainstream press is hard pressed to say positive things about our current political leadership, the way in which the pandemic has been managed. Um, you know, the mistakes that have been made. Clearly, it's a very very difficult situation. Nobody would would deny that there have been some good things, the science, the vaccines, lots of good things, but a huge amount of extremely poor governance, lack of transparency, cronyism, money wasted, poor decision-making, saying they're following the science but but really not, or confusing matters and, and making it very hard for people to judge. So, you know, it's very hard looking at that not to be critical. And we have, as a journal, tended to criticise the government in power at any one time. So I think we can genuinely say that, that we, we don't take a party political stance. We do try to look at the evidence and the public interest and 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 comment on that basis. Mm. And looking forward to your leaving, not that I am looking forward <laughs> to your leaving, I am... <laughs> Looking into the future would be better. Good save there, it, Helen. Good save. You're leaving. <laughs> what does it feel like to become part of the BMJ's history? Well, do you know, in this very place where we're sitting, I don't know if you've been to the next door room, also dark and with very little kind of... I think it's got a bed in that you can have a little light oh, on. Oh, I haven't seen it? the bed. <laughs> there are these um, wooden panels, rather large, uh, and, and, you know, rather like having your gravestone engraved with your birth date but not your death date. It says Fiona Godley 2005 with a little dash. And, oh. and I don't know if someone's already put in the 2021. I'll have to go and check. But anyway... There it will be, and and the person who takes over from me um, will have their name placed there. So it is a it is a sort of funny old business, and um, I feel very honoured. I feel I've had a wonderful wonderful time. I I I I leave this job out of my own free will, um, not not you know because I have to, because I'm still loving it, and and because I think the journal is doing good things. And I feel now is the right time to go. I'm, I'm glad that you clarified that. <laughs> because we did have one question from a reader. And oh. I'll read it aloud because oh. I feel that if they posted it onto our thing, I could read it aloud. But it might make you laugh at this uh, slightly otherwise uh, emotional moment. Are you resigning because of the COVID-19 vaccine whistleblower article? They write. No. That is to say, have you been made to resign because of it? Also... Do you think science and scientific research is losing its credibility? Very good. Are they signed their name to that? No, sadly not. Oh, sadly. Uh, but I think that's actually possibly mine and Duncan's fault, a failure of transparency that we did not ask <laughs> them their name. Mostly because I thought I didn't want to read them all out. No, no. Podcast. Well, it's very sweet of them so to, to suggest down. that off. Uh, uh, as it. It's very sweet of them to suggest that. No, if they look back at the BMJ, they'll find that I announced my departure back in July, and I had no knowledge of this personal, this 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 whistleblower at the time, who did approach us with her concerns, and we commissioned the article. And the article is a good piece of investigative journalism. Um, it's always a bit of a decision about whether to publish things that will be seen to be critical of vaccines. 
we have published many things that are critical of drugs in general, treatments, um, diagnostic tests, all of that. Skepticism is our is the name of our game. Uh, Skepticism based on evidence, and and I think this particular story is about um, experience which suggests that the Pfizer vaccine trial was not as well run as it should have been. So I think it's a very good piece of investigative journalism, and no, it is not the reason for me leaving. I think the evidence will support that statement. Another section of the journal that we have um, at the moment is uh, in the career section. There's this little group of articles called YI. And as well as drawing on um, the strength of your family and those very personal relationships, do you have any particular places or things that you like to do to relax? Well, I, I meditate, um, not as often perhaps as, as I talk about it. <laughs> but I do I do have a meditation practice, which I find incredibly helpful. Um, and it's, you know, 10 minutes in the morning um, and longer at the weekends. And, um, you know, it gives you a, a sense of leveling and it allows you when things come at, come at you, as they do through the phone, through email, um, to just... Um, they don't go in so far. They don't. They they hit. They hit, but they don't go deep in. And you, it's it's it, it allows you to drop between meetings. Um, so leaving one meeting where there's been certain pressures or tensions, or one phone call into the next, without carrying that through, which is very draining. So I, I find meditation is a, is a pretty crucial thing. Um, I'd like to say that I exercise and do all sorts of things, but I'm not great at that. What about I, your wild swimming? Well, I was going to mention mm. the wild swimming. I do like wild swimming, um, and wild not not wild wild, but I do love swimming in cold water, and I love swimming in the sea, and I live in Cambridge where we have the longest Lido, um, hundred hundred yard open air pool, um, which stays open until the end of October. So I, I do do cold water swimming, and then there's the river as well. So I I I, I find that is a real quality of life thing, and I my daughter Tilda is is a great. A wild swimmer as well, so she is a good companion for me on those things. Um, and you know, I'm stepping away from the journal in a few weeks' time, and um, I hope to do more of the things that I think of myself as doing, such as sailing, walking, um, you know, theatre. Um, we we put on plays as a family every year, all through my childhood. Um, up and we did thirty years of. I think we need to know plays. more about this. What, oh. what, do, what do you mean by <laughs> Sorry, a, you put on a I play? Just had to slip that I think, in. I think <laughs> a lot of people out there <laughs> might the say, you know, we, like, we play a little bit of Monopoly together <laughs> or something like that. I don't think many families put on plays. No. Well, I mentioned my mother at the beginning. She was a, she was um, uh, uh, an empresaria, really, in, a, in her own way, and. Um, uh, she decided that because my siblings were music- musicians that they always put into kind of minstrels costumes and made to sit at the side and she wanted them to experience theatre so so we started putting on plays I was seven for the first one We I was Miss Prism in The Importance of Being Honest um, and we put them on in our sitting room and then gradually they became more ambitious and by the end we were putting on three productions in three theatres raising money for charity but mainly just um, having a lot of fun uh, and a lot of you know argument and distress as and was well. that your best part 
No, I would say we did. My, the favourite play was a play called Daisy Pulls It Off by um, Denise Deegan, I think it is. Strangely, I've actually heard of Have that. you heard of that play? I it's think, a I think wonderful I, spoof. I, think I did it at school. Angela Brazil's kind of Mallory Towers type, you know, that whole <laughs> thing. And there's a lovely line in it, which, which I was had the marvellous joy of saying, which is, Matron will never let her play with a broken ankle. <laughs> <laughs> which is when someone couldn't play in the hockey match. Um, so, um, no, and we we did um, musicals, we did Pirates of Penzance, we did Salad Days, and, and I have to say they were a real part of my childhood. The reason I mention them now is that on the stepping away, I've been charged with reinvigorating the plays, so we've got to find a play to do October this time next year. Hmm. Um, so if you know of any, please, please let me know. message for our listeners or your readers about creating this healthier world that you wanted to do? Well, I think we have to end on climate change. Um, I was up, up in COP, up at COP for the for one of the weeks of, of the discussions, um, really trying to help push the health voice in the um, discussions, talking about the climate crisis as a health crisis, talking about how healthcare itself can reduce its carbon footprint and become part of the solution instead of a part of the problem. Um, I do genuinely think that we are at a crisis point and um, that we have to fundamentally change how we live and that's going to be extremely hard uh, for each of us as individuals and for us as societies. But I, I really don't know what else we can possibly do it unless we're going to face climate catastrophe so it is i always feel these are very strong words and um but i also feel that you know human ingenuity and in particular the medical and healthcare professions uh who have shown themselves resilient and resourceful and innovative and trustworthy um that i think we have an enormous capacity to push for change and um, I hope very much that, that readers of the BMJ will be at the vanguard of those efforts. Mm. And for you leaving, um, we heard you were very young when you became editor of the BMJ. And you're, I'm saying that you're retiring, but I feel like someone who's 60 can't really be retiring these days. So what are you going to do next? So no, I'm not retiring. I, I do intend to continue to work in various capacities, but but not full time. I've got two children who are um, in training or at university so providing for them will be a bit of a need for the next few years um, I'm planning my husband and I are going to take three months of holiday and then uh, various other things are in the offing and uh, you know I look forward to being useful and uh, doing interesting stuff well I think after 16 years of service you deserve a three-month holiday that seems thank you seems just thank about you right. Helen I appreciate that and may I say what a you know it's been lovely talking to you <laughs> I'm glad you've enjoyed yourself <laughs> the arch communicator I do think of you in that way so well to talk to you. Fee thank you so much for talking to us and um, I'm sure for many listeners and readers out there enormous thanks for the incredible work and effort and enthusiasm and contribution that you have made to our lives people's working lives and to bringing a healthier world thank you thank you helen <laughs> <laughs>